Well, you can grab a seat. And good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am the college teaching director at our Anderson campus. Uh, but every once in a while, I get to come back here, uh, partially because uh, I actually worked at Southwood for a few years as the, in the youth ministry. Uh, I've got the scars to prove it. Uh, you can check. They're mostly emotional, but, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes. But I'm always excited to be back. I'm excited to be back with you all this morning in particular. Uh, I'm except, exceptionally pumped up this semester uh, because my wife and I welcomed our very first child into the world three months ago. Her name is Charlotte, uh, and she wore that sticker just so that there was no confusion. Uh, and she is pretty great. And because of her, because of what she has brought to our lives, uh, I had a newfound appreciation uh, for this video. Dove Men Plus Care. (laughs) Because what better way could there be to bring together the joys of fatherhood and soap? You know, right here. This Super Bowl commercial is the pinnacle of our advertising achievements. I'm convinced. Uh, Why? Because this commercial has the ability to put on this amazing show that that tells us about fatherhood and everyone watches it and you can't help but want to be a dad, right? Everyone wants to be a dad now. Like every girl here is like, I want to be a dad. Like, I don't know. I don't know how, but I'm going to make it happen. Uh, And yet at the same time, while it's putting on that show and telling us this one thing, it's actually wanting to sell us soap, right? Like that's, that's the point of it. It's saying one thing and yet it's doing another. And this is something that we do. This is something that we do in our lives where we say one thing and yet do another, where we compliment someone and build them up. But it's really because we want to get in on their good side because we're going to ask them a favor later. Sometimes we do something selfless and kind, but it's really because we expect something in return at some later date. We call ourselves believers and Christians and we follow the God and we have these standards that we tell people about and yet we use those standards to judge other people or we set those standards and claim to follow them and yet we don't. This is hypocrisy is what it is and and the reality is that we're all hypocrites. That we've all found ourselves at some point saying one thing and yet doing another claiming to follow the standards of the Lord, and yet not. not. Not because we want to be hypocrites. It's not that we set out with that goal, but we set out and we claim to follow these standards, and yet sometimes it's just too hard to do that. It's too hard to meet our own expectations. And so we give ourselves a little bit of grace, and we let ourselves kind of slide just this once. But just this once happens over and over and over and over again, and suddenly we find ourselves immersed in disobedience. We find ourselves as unfaithful followers. And then what? Well, our Lord, our God, promises to discipline 
those who disobey. He promises to discipline those who are unfaithful. But fortunately, our God is gracious, and he provides grace in the midst of that discipline. And he has graciously shown us how to avoid that unfaithfulness. He's graciously given us examples and instruction on how to catch unfaithfulness at its earliest stages so that we can avoid that discipline further down the road. That's why this morning we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. And we're examining a passage where the author is using the historical biblical figure of Moses as both a warning and an encouragement. He's a warning against the hypocrisy and unfaithfulness we can find in our lives. He he is an example of someone who found himself in that moment where he has become an unfaithful follower. And he is a warning against that. We're going to see the stages uh, play out step by step how he gets there. But he's not just a warning. He's also an encouragement. Because what we see in the life of Moses is that even in the midst of discipline, God pours out grace. Grace upon grace upon him. Because ultimately, our God does not discipline us out of anger or hatred. Our God disciplines us out of love. And we see this in Moses in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Now, as we start this off, we have to remember the context of our passage. We always have to remember the context to understand the content that we're about to tackle. This is especially true in the book of Hebrews because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens, and we need to know the context. We've been going through it all semester in the college uh, ministry on Sundays, and so we are approaching a passage right here uh, where we really need to remember the context of who's being spoken to, who is the audience that's being addressed. There are multiple theories, but most likely the audience that's being addressed are Jewish believers in the early 60s AD who are about to be facing persecution in their lives. So these Jewish believers are being written to by the author of Hebrews, and so far in the book he's gone through how Jesus is better than the idols that they've created for themselves. He's addressed the fact that Jesus is better than the identities that they find for themselves. And what we're seeing right here is that Jesus is better than even the historical figure of Moses. He starts off in chapter 3 verse 1 saying, "Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So right off the bat, he talks to these brothers, these believers, and he says, you hold Jesus as the high priest of your confession. Right? In other words, he is the object of your worship. He is the identity that you find for yourselves. Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And then he takes Jesus and he's going to bring up and compare him to Moses. And this is very important for this audience because, remember, they're not just believers. They're Jewish believers. And as Jews, they had a very uh, deep knowledge of Moses. Not just a knowledge of Moses, but they loved Moses. They loved him. Omomo. He was their favorite. Like, he was a historical hero figure. They talked about him. They heard stories about him uh, day in, day out. Moses was someone that they held up above all else. I think our, the closest we come to this is this beautiful hero (laughs) seen here. For those of you that haven't been indoctrinated to the cult of Texas A&M, this is Reveille. She is the highest-ranking member, the highest-ranking officer of our Corps of Cadets. She is basically everything that is good in the world summed up in a dog. And she (laughs) 
is wonderful, and we love her. We love her so, so very much. Uh, this is Reveille 4. She's, she's passed away, but they, we, she's part of the lineage of Reveille's that we know and that we love. When I started at Texas A&M as a freshman, I found out for the very first time that we love Reveille so much that we actually have a dedicated burial plot right outside of Kyle Field uh, with its own special scoreboard so that all of the Revleys who have been buried there, which is all of them, all of the Revleys are buried in the special plot, and they have the special scoreboard so they can watch the game from beyond. <laughs> and at the time, when I discovered this, I thought, that's a, that's a bit much, right? Like, maybe, ooh, this is looking a little weird. Like, maybe this is a little much, but I'll tell you. When I graduated four years later, I've walked away from the university, and I look back at that, and I think, we're not doing enough. <laughs> there should be more. <laughs> I don't know what more is, but it, there, it should be there. Like, because I love, I love her. I love her with a deep and abiding affection. And there is something within us, man, that just holds her up. And the Jews, they look back at Moses. They're like, Moses is the man. We love this guy. We love Moses so much. And so if the author is going to compare Jesus to Moses, they're already getting a little answer. They're like, whoa, like, what are you about to say? And sure enough, the author holds up Moses and Jesus, and in doing so, he shows how Jesus is better than Moses. He starts off by saying Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, not but the builder of all things is God. He says, Jesus is the builder of a house. Moses is just the house. He's comparing them in both their position. He's also going to compare them both in their performance. He says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He says, Moses, yeah, he was great and he was a good servant. But Jesus is the son of God meaning he's of the same nature, meaning he is God. Suddenly we see Jesus' position is so much better and his performance is better. We see that Moses was faithful. He starts off faithful for the Lord. He was a man that lived by faith and he accomplished great things through the Lord's power. But Christ is still faithful to the end, to death and beyond. That's where Christ's faithfulness took him. Even now he is faithful to us Faithful to the Lord's call that he is serving as our high priest, as our representative before the throne of God in heaven. Right now, that's what he's doing. And while Moses started faithful, what the author is about to explain in the next few verses is how Moses stopped being faithful. How eventually he found himself as a hypocrite. He found himself being an unfaithful follower. And he doesn't explain this to make us think more poorly of Moses. He doesn't do this to knock Moses down so he can kind of knock Jesus up. That's not the goal. The goal is to show us Moses as an example of unfaithfulness so that we can catch it early on. Because the reality is that unfaithfulness is built up over time. It's always a gradual build, right? We know this about faithfulness. We know that you have to build faithfulness over time. Trust is built over time. That's why we don't propose on the first date. You go on a first date, it's super awesome. You probably don't propose. Second date? Hey, whatever. You know, but in the first date, 
Let's hold off, right? We know, we know that. Deep down, we're like, no, there, there needs to be more time given uh, to that relationship to build up faithfulness. Unfaithfulness works in the exact same way. Time and time again, when we see people caught up in these huge uh, affairs, adultery, public, big, crazy things, generally, nine times out of ten, when we look at those people's lives, we realize that it wasn't just them stepping out and saying, I'm going to make this huge, crazy mistake. Instead, we look at their lives and we see smaller signs of infidelity, smaller slips up, smaller shady behaviors that led up to that moment where they were so deep. We see it in white-collar crime. We see it in where people are caught with this huge embezzlement scheme where they've stolen millions and millions of dollars. And the reality is that they don't just start off right there. We see in their lives, we see in their studies, as their books have been opened, we're like, oh my goodness. You know, they cut a little corner here and they were uh, unethical right there and there and there. And it built up. Unfaithfulness is built up over time. And so we have been given the instruction of the Lord. We have been given examples like Moses to help us catch it early on because it's better for us. Because <laughs> we don't want to find ourselves so far down that road that God has to discipline us as only he can. We want to avoid that. And so we look at Moses. We look at the fact that he was someone who, at the very beginning, the very first step, lost hope. The author of Hebrews tells us Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The author is encouraging the readers to hold fast to their hope because unfaithfulness starts with losing hope. Every time. Unfaithfulness starts with losing hope. And this is a biblical hope. This is... uh, not the way that we often use hope. Sometimes we throw around hope and it's just sort of like, oh, I wish this would happen, so I'll say I I hope it. Or sometimes we're like, oh, I I really don't want this to happen even though I know it's going to. I'm dreading it. And so therefore, I'll I'll hope that it doesn't happen even though I kind of know it will. Biblical hope is a eager and certain expectation for the future. You're eager and you're certain about this expectation you have for the future. That's biblical hope that we see it explained more later in Hebrews. And this is what we're supposed to hold on to. Our hope is what we need to never lose, that we need to hold fast to, that we need to boast in. Well, we as believers, what is that hope? What is that ultimate hope that we hold fast to? The author explains in chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. I love the language here, calling him the anchor of our soul. He is the the hope, the the, the confidence that we, we cling to, the anchor that we grab a hold of in the midst of that storm. My hope is not ultimately found in my faithfulness or my ability to do this or say that. My hope ultimately is in the fact that I can't do the right thing, that I can't fix the brokenness in my life, and that I can't fix the brokenness in the world around me that just becomes more and more apparent with every passing day. My hope is ultimately in the fact that Jesus Christ has done what I could not do, that Jesus Christ, God, who stepped out of heaven and onto earth, 
who lived, died, and rose again to save me from sin, to save me from death, to establish a relationship between me and the God of the universe if only I trust in what Christ has done, if only I trust in who Christ is and what he's accomplished on my behalf. That's my hope. That's the anchor for my soul. And the truth is, I mean, we, we need an anchor because storms are going to come. And when those storms hit, you've got to have something to hold on to. When my wife and I had Charlotte three months ago, uh, we had the first 24 hours, and it was great. She was amazing. She was super chill, uh, just kind of drowsy and just like so cute. And she would open her eyes every once in a while and be like, ah! and it was just great. It was an amazing moment. Uh, but as that first day kind of came and went, uh, we were still in the hospital and a nurse came to us and she told us, hey, uh, I'm going to give you this pamphlet. It's called Baby's Second Night. She said, I'm going to give this to you because generally babies have a big change their second night. She says, basically, when babies are born, it's a very traumatic process. Right? It's intense. I was like, I know. I was there. I said, that's all. <laughs> it's very traumatic. And it's very tiring for the baby. She says, so this baby is just worn out. She's been worn out for a whole day. But I'm telling you, after 24 hours, that, that fatigue is going to wear off, and she's going to realize that she's not in the womb anymore. And when that happens, I just want you to look at this piece of paper. And we were like, okay, whatever. You know, like, I'm sure that's true of like, other people's babies who are very inferior to our baby. But we've... <laughs> We've got this, you know, like she's super great. She's so great. She's just cuddling us, you know. And so she laughed and we were like, okay, yeah, whatever. And tossed the paper. But sure enough, a few hours later, our 24-hour clock expired. And as soon as that happened, our baby awoke with a roar and a fury that I have not seen ever before and ever will again. Because this baby realized, just as she said, she realized, oh my gosh, I'm not in the womb and I don't like this place. And so she started screaming and crying and she was upset. And my wife and I, we're, we're already exhausted and we don't know what to do. And so we're just trying to figure out, and I don't know what's happening and try to plug her into the wall. Like That didn't work. I don't know what, what's happening. And so suddenly in that moment of just terror, we remembered, we said, oh my gosh, the sheet, the sheet. And so we found the piece of paper, we brought it up, we were like, oh my gosh. And we, sure enough, we started going through, we were like, she's doing this, she's doing this, she's doing this. And we realized that it had tips and tricks for how to address those different issues. So we started, you know, putting it on her side or like whatever, you know, like trying to help her out. Uh, and, and it worked. And sure enough, we got through that night and we were like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. To the point where we kept the sheet of paper. We put it in her baby book. Because one day we're going to turn to her and we're going to say, this is why you're alive. Right here. <laughs> this piece of paper saved all of us. <laughs> We are here because of this. And we had this. We needed something to grab a hold of because that storm came and blown and we needed that anchor. And we find ourselves in storms of life and we need an anchor to hold on to. Otherwise, we lose that hope. Otherwise, that confidence is gone. We see it happen to Moses and the Israelites following him. We see them wind up in places in the desert where they're out of water and they lose hope immediately. I say, we don't have water. What are we going to do? We're going to look at it here in a minute. We see them get to uh, places, battles like Kadesh Barnea, where they're supposed to go in and conquer a land, and yet the, the guys that are living there look really, really tough, and so they lose hope. And as soon as that hope is lost, man, they, they start on this path, this downward trend towards unfaithfulness. We see it in our lives. Something unexpected happens, a tragedy. 
maybe something less traumatic, but still unexpected, still disappointing. And what do we do in that moment? Do we hold fast to that anchor for our soul? Do we hold fast to the hope that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord? That eventually this world will be done away with? Do we hold fast to that hope? This is why we stress scripture memory. Because we know that those storms are going to come and we need something. We need the scripture. We need the words of God to anchor us so that we have that hope. Because if we lose that hope, our hearts begin to harden. As soon as we take that first step towards losing the hope, we take another step and our hearts harden towards the Lord. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Without hope, our hearts will harden towards God and we begin to grumble and we begin to complain about our circumstances. We see this in our lives. Uh, if you've ever been to a Texas A&M Aggie football game, you will know, <laughs> dang straight, and you will know that the student side, everyone over there, everyone on the student side of the game, uh, they stand. They stand for the whole game. When I was at A&M, I did it. Many of us have done it, are currently doing it. Uh, and we, we appreciate this as a tradition, right? And so we, we show up for games, especially at the beginning of the year, and we're excited. We're like, oh, man, this is great, right? We're all standing together and shoulder to shoulder. And you're like, man, I'll, you guys are the best. And, and we love doing uh, yells together. And they pass it back, the signals. We're like, yeah, let's all yell together. Ah! And we, just, we love it. We love it. But I'll tell you, as a former student who went to many a game, there were certain games where that began to break down. There were certain games, especially during my college career, uh, we did not win ever. And so because of that, uh, we had a lot of issues. And so because of that, we would have games where we just would slowly fall further and further and further behind the other team. And when that happened, I'm telling you, was we're standing up there and we're yelling, we're passing back cheers and we're super excited. Uh, as that score, as that gap begins to grow and we're down by seven and 10 and then 17 and 20 and all these numbers and it's getting into the double digits and we're like, oh, I don't I don't know. And all of a sudden in those moments, you would look around and you realize everyone's kind of like, oh, just like, man, it's hot. You know, like the beginning of you realize, like, that sun is unbearable. Like, this humidity. Whew, you know, I mean, you, why are you so close to me? Like, why? Quit that. And I don't want to pass it back. Like, I No. And people begin to leave. And people would just kind of flake off and they would leave and be like, two percenters. And like, whatever. And they're gone. Why? Because their hope was gone. And as soon as that hope of the victory was disappearing, as soon as it was gone, they began to realize, man, I'm not, I'm not very comfortable, and I don't like this, and I don't want to go. And they began to grumble and complain. Why? Because their hope had been taken from them. We see this in our lives. We see this in the people uh, following Moses. As they're following Moses and he's leading them out of the promised land, or out of, uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Egypt to the promised land, uh, they are... <laughs> They are headed out, and the, all the congregation of the people of Israel are moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So all of a sudden, they're walking out of Egypt, and they discover, oh no, we don't have any water, because it's a desert. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So these people, their hope is gone. They're saying, there's no water? 
And as soon as that hope disappears, as soon as they lose their hope in the Lord, the God who saved them, who parted the Red Sea, as soon as they lose that hope, they begin to complain and grumble. And they argue with Moses. Like, what's going on? Why are you trying to kill us? And what's so incredibly impressive about this moment is that it's coming immediately after the end of chapter 16. Right at the very end of chapter 16, the people get to a moment in the desert where they're like, man, we don't have any food. We're running out of food. And so they go to Moses and they're like, what's the deal? You were just leading us out into the desert to kill us with starvation? Like, why did you do this? At least we got to eat back in Egypt when we were slaves. And Moses prays to the Lord. The Lord says, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. There is still hope. And so he sends bread from heaven, just appears on the ground, called manna, literally meaning, what is this? And so they would go out in the morning. They would find this manna, heaven bread, on the ground every morning. And they would eat it throughout the day. That's what sustained them. So these people, these Israelites, are approaching Moses with like a little basket of heaven bread. And they're talking to him about how there's no water and how they're afraid they're going to die because there's no water. Like My mouth is so dry from eating this bread that fell from heaven. (laughs) So what, there's no water? Like, what's going to happen? Like, we're going to die. And they're complaining when they are literally like swallowing a miracle. Like, that's happening right here. And so we realized, man, that these people, they had so much that they could be thankful for. There was so much blessing in their lives at that time, and yet they were still complaining. And yet we do this. We do this. We have so much to be thankful for, and yet we find ourselves complaining before the Lord. The truth is that a heart that is filled with gratitude has no room for grumbling. So we, when tempted to complain... Grumble as we lose our hope and we begin to walk down the path of complaining. We need to stop and think, wow, what look at what the Lord has already given me, what He's already blessed me with. There's so much I could still be thankful for. There's so much blessing in my life. These people, these circumstances, this job. There's so much the Lord has already graciously provided. There's no need for me to complain and, and worry and grumble in this moment. Because if we give in to that complaint, if we give in to that grumbling, we just take one more step. We lose our hope, we begin complaining, and then we just rebel. Because the reality is without a future confidence or a present satisfaction, we will question God's authority. And we will openly rebel against Him. Recently, one of my friends was putting his daughter to bed, who's about three and a half, and as they're going through the process and the routine, uh, the last part of the routine was she needed to go use the potty one more time before going to bed. But she didn't want to go to bed. The whole time she'd been fighting it and arguing, saying, I don't want to go to bed, and this is bad, and I don't ever want to sleep ever again. And so she is just fighting the whole time, and my friend says, ultimately, it's like, no, like, look, darling, you have to just go to the potty one more time. You have to go to bed. It's, best. it's what's best, I promise, for everyone especially dad. And so he tells her, go to the potty. So she goes, and she's in there a while, and she's quiet, and he's like, what's going on? So he follows her, and he sees her sitting on the edge of the tub. And, she look, and he says, darling, what are you doing? That's not the potty. You, don't, you go potty on the potty, not on the tub. What are you doing? She looks at him right in the eye and says, I go potty here all the time. <laughs> which he knew was a lie. 
Because if she had done that, he would be very aware of that. And it had not happened. And yet in that moment, she was just looking for some way to just push back on his authority. And so she thought, oh yeah, this will get him. (laughs) All the time, dad. All the time. (laughs) Lying through her sweet little teeth. Why? Because her hope was gone. Her complaining had risen up. And so she eventually found herself in a moment where she was just ultimately rebelling against her dad, where she was questioning even his authority to put her to bed. How does he know it's what's best for me? We see this in the nation of Israel. We see them in number, or we see this, it's described in Hebrews, where he says, where your fathers put me to the test, where they saw my works for 40 years. In other words, where they put me to the test, where they questioned me, where they pushed up against me, where they pushed back on my authority for 40 years. It's what they saw. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, like in Numbers 20, where the Lord is speaking to Moses because the people, they're afraid, they don't have water again, and they're just freaking out, and they're going before Moses, they're complaining. And so the Lord tells Moses, take the staff, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. So the Lord clearly tells Moses, bring water to these people by way of speaking to this rock. That's how I'm going to provide for these people, for my people, Moses. I'm still going to give them drink. I'm still giving them food. Speak to this rock and they'll have their water. So Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And Moses said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. The congregation drank and their livestock. God explicitly told Moses to speak to the rock to bring water forth for the people. What does Moses do? He shows up to these people, he yells at them, calls them rebels, and then places himself in this position of authority, saying, you want me? Oh, so I need to give you, I need to give you water now. And then he hits the rock with his staff so that the water would come out. What we see in Numbers 20 is that it wasn't just the nation of Israel that was beginning to fall away from the Lord. It wasn't just the nation of Israel that was unfaithful. It was Moses. Moses himself reached that point where he had lost hope in that land that they were supposed to be at. He lost hope in the God who called him out. He he'd begun to complain and, and grumble and complain about these people, these rebels that he had to lead. And it culminated in this moment where he put himself in a position of authority that was reserved for the Lord where he rebelled against the Lord's instruction and did what he wanted to do. That's what we see in Numbers 20. And when we see rebellion like this, when we rebel like this, we have to remember that there are consequences. That there are serious consequences for rebellion. For the nation of Israel... The Lord says, therefore, I was provoked with that generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
What he's describing here is the fact that the Lord allowed the entire, that entire generation of Israel, all of those people wandering through the desert, he allowed all of them to die in the desert, except for a few faithful men and their families. He allows all of these people, millions of people, to die in the desert, denying them the promised land, the rest. This rest is ultimately an experience of the Lord's blessing. Uh, a blessing reserved for those who are, are faithful. Some uh, Christian men and women will, will argue for this being uh, a, a description of eternal salvation, that they would equate rest with salvation, not with blessing. But I would say that there is a very important context that we have to keep in mind that, that really convinces me towards the fact that this rest is not salvation, but it is, in fact, a, a, a blessing, a, a blessing reserved for, for the faithful. And I think we see this back in Numbers, where all this went down. Back in Numbers 20, we see that the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What we see in Numbers 20 is that Moses himself was denied that rest. Sure enough, Moses is going to die on a cliff looking out at the promised land. The Lord's going to tell him, you can look at it, but you'll never be in it. And he dies. That's how Moses ends his life. Looking at the land that was promised to him, that he was striving for, and yet in God's discipline, it was taken away. So was it his salvation? I don't think so. I think we know for certain that Moses was saved, that his salvation was secure. Why? Because in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. We call this the transfiguration, a moment in Jesus' ministry where he takes a few of his disciples up on a mountain, and he reveals to them just a small little taste of who he really is, uh, just, an, just a piece, just a, a glimmer of his deity of the fact that he was God, his face like the sun, his clothes like pure light. And in this moment that's so amazing that sends his disciples to their faces on the ground, in this moment it's not just Jesus that stands there. Instead, we also see him bring along two buddies. Behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So right here we see Moses. His salvation was secure. It was never a question, that rest was never a question of, of being saved, of having eternal life. It was a question of a different, a blessing, a reward that was taken away from him in the Lord's discipline. And yet, do you see what's so beautiful about God's discipline? Do you see the grace that's still there? Moses died on a cliff looking at a promised land that the Lord said, you're never going to go in there. And yet, where is he right now? He's in the promised land. And why is he there? Because Jesus Christ wanted to talk to him. Because Jesus Christ was better than Moses was. He was more faithful. He earned the right to be in that land, and he has given that right to all who trust in him. The truth is that a lot of us are headed towards discipline. A lot of us are in discipline right now, and we're feeling it. But we need to remember that that discipline is coming out of love. 
that that discipline still contains grace. That the Lord doesn't hate us. It's not, that's not where the discipline's from. It's because he loves us, because he wants our relationship to be better. It's not that he's concerned. It's not that we should be concerned that our relationship with God is just going to disappear if we're too unfaithful, if we do too many bad things. That relationship won't be broken, but that relationship can be strained. There can be a tension there that we don't want, an unhealthiness in that relationship through prolonged unfaithfulness. My daughter has a current habit of screaming in my face. Just something she does on the reg. And she screams directly into my face uh, day in, day out. And when she does this, I'm a little upset, but I'm like, it's okay. You know, I understand the phase that we're in. Uh, She's going to scream in my face. And that's all right. Like, I'm coming to grips with it. And sometimes she does it, and she's, like, smiling and clicking her heels. I'm like, okay, well, it's all right. So it's, it, we get past it. But if Charlotte continued to scream into my face every day for the next year, and then two years, and then three years, and then 10 years go by, and she's still screaming directly into my face. As she's a 37-year-old, and she's still screaming directly in my face every time we get together, Thanksgivings would be a little strained, right? That relationship would have some tension to it. And I would always be her dad, right? That relationship would not be ended. I will always be her father. She will always be my daughter. And yet there would be some unhealthiness in that relationship. You would look at that relationship and say, that 37-year-old woman should probably stop screaming at her dad's face day in and day out. The Lord wants our relationship to be healthy. We should desire that our relationship with the Lord to be, we should desire that relationship to be healthy. We want to avoid tension. We want to avoid distress. So how do we do that? Do we just sit there and think, okay, well, I'm going to catch all this stuff, and I'm never going to sin, I'm going to be faithful forever. That's a goal, and the Lord has provided his spirit to assist us, to give us power and produce fruit that, that sets us on that path. But the reality is that we're not able to do it on our own. Even with the Holy Spirit, we are called to more than just solitary attempts at pursuing faithfulness. The author of Hebrews ends out this passage telling us, look, you need to take this example of Moses. You need to see what happened. You need to see these symptoms, these steps he took towards unfaithfulness, this buildup over time. You need to take this and not just apply it to yourself. He says, you need to take care, brothers, lest there be in any, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The ultimate goal with this instruction isn't that we would just log it away and think, okay, well, I'm going to do that. The ultimate goal is that we hear the instruction and we say, all right, we are going to do this. We are going to come together. We are going to find community with one another. And we're going to exhort one another. We're going to call each other out on those problems that we see. Because we're never going to fully avoid sin. We're never going to fully avoid unfaithfulness. But we can catch it early on. If we enter into Christian community that is honest, that is transparent, we can encourage one another towards faithfulness. This is why we have Bible studies at Grace. We have men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies in the mornings and in the evenings. We have home groups. Mixed groups where you can be with people younger than you, same age as you, stage ahead of you. You can be all across the board. We have all these opportunities that you can find community, a a group of like-minded men and women who are pursuing the same Lord that you are pursuing, who want to be faithful in the same way that you want to be faithful. We have these groups not just so that we can have another checkbox on our list of churchy things to do. It's not so that we can feel good or boost our rosters. 
Our goal is that we want to create a space for you to have this community. We want you to exhort one another. We want you to walk towards the Lord in faithfulness. We want you to call out one another every day as long as it's called today. That's our desire for you. Maybe for you it's going to start at home with your spouse. Maybe that's where there just needs to be a little bit more honesty, a little bit more open dialogue and conversation. For others of us, man, we don't have that relationship. And so we start in one of those Bible studies with an accountability partner in one of those home groups. We need community. That's why this morning we're taking communion. As the men are preparing it and about to bring it down, we're going to do this not just so that we can check it off our list and feel like, oh man, great, we did communion one more time. Uh, We got it done for this month. The goal for communion is that we as believers, all believers, not just Grace Bible Church believers, that all Christians from anywhere can come together in community and remember what Christ has done. Not that we experience some sort of mystical transformation or gain our salvation or anything through this process. It's a a way to remember what Christ has accomplished. Not only to remember what Christ has done, but to remember that there are men and women around us who are the same recipients of the same grace, with the same faith. So as we take this communion, I would encourage you to be thinking, where are you going to create community? Not just where can you find it for yourself, because that's a consumer mindset, selfish. Where can you create community for someone else? Where can you be, where can you be proactive? What gr- home group can you join and make it a better group? What group can you start afresh? What steps can you take this week to create community of men and women who encourage one another, who exhort one another towards faithfulness, who catch those early stages of unfaithfulness so that we can avoid the discipline that the Lord has promised. So as we prepare, let's pray. God, we thank you once again that you have given us, Lord, just an abundance of community, that God, there are people around us, even right now in this moment, who want to know you. God, who want to make you known. God, we thank you that we're not, on this, we're not in this battle, we're not in this pursuit just flying solo, but that, God, we are surrounded by people that you have provided for our encouragement, for our exhortation. If you would take a moment right now, ask the Lord to maybe show you what's the next step you can take this week. What's the step you can take towards Finding a community is your first step, identifying some unfaithfulness in your life. Are you at one of those early stages of losing hope or beginning to complain? Or is your step to have a conversation with your spouse, to have that conversation with that friend at work, to start a group, to join a group of believers are willing to be honest and transparent with one another. Ask the Lord, what's your first step this week towards finding a community focused on faithfulness? Ask him that. As I said, 
If you would take a, take a moment, uh, take these next few moments as we are passing the plates and, and taking the elements that you would be praying and asking the Lord to show you where can you create community? Where through his power and grace can you provide fellowship and encouragement and exhortation for your roommates or, or your spouse or your kids or your workmates? Ask the Lord to show you where can you be his instrument in creating a community focused on faithfulness? Ask him that as we pass around the plates. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so many beautiful reminders of what you've done. That, God, we can see your glory in creation. (laughs) That no one is without excuse. That, God, we can all see your glory and your might and your power. And and God, you have shown us through your word, through your people, through your creation, that, that you alone are worthy of our worship, that you alone are worthy of our praise. So God, as we sing one more song, God, let us recognize how great you are, how marvelous you are. God, let this be a prayer from our hearts, not just words from our lips. God, allow us to glorify you through this song and through this week.